Rewilding the mind, um, taking one's, uh, opening oneself to nature, to both what we call the natural world around, which we consider to be trees and rocks and rivers and elk (coughs) and birds and rain and sun and mist and snow. So we know something about opening, opening to that which is both uncompromising in its presence, just is exactly what it is, Um, varnished, and something so healing about being where it's still wild enough to, you know, remind us of what it's like out of our systems and structures and customs and laws and out of our boxes, what it's like to be out there. Both something very naked, vulnerable, uncompromising, exactly what it is. Mm. So anyway, nature stands on the world of nature. We look at that as external. It stands on its own truth. It's like this, birth, aging, death, seeding, growth, breaking down, decay. Predators and prey. Mm. Stands on that ground, the ground of of that particular domain, domain of the, say, the sentient world but something inspiring about its uncompromising defenselessness. It can seem incredibly rugged and challenging to us, but also you recognize everything out there is following the law. It will be broken. It will be eaten. The rocks will tumble. The rivers will cut through. They will dry up. They will flood. Now, personally, it's, of course, you know, and yet it touches some sort of nerve of what it could be like to have what it takes to just be able to handle that sentient experience, to be out in that sentient experience, what it could touch in us, almost a longing to be that, even though physically we couldn't bear it. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could bear it a little, a little more, open a little more to it. And then through that, perhaps recognizing that that fundamental over-the-edge courage, openness, that perhaps there's something to tell us about our own nature, our own citta. You know, I might say the psychological or the emotional, the mental or the immaterial domain, where an opening can be very, very fruitful in its own way. Vulnerability. not being able to control it, make it happen. Mm. Something that doesn't obey the traffic lights. <clears throat> and so though this is not really something we can conceive, I think most people intuitively get that, that the wish to be out there, you know, with their down vests and their, <laughs> you know, safety gear, but somehow out there touching, it, touching into that because it has no hate in it it doesn't reject anything it has no greed in it it just you know it never rejects you doesn't measure you doesn't compare you with anything so if you're willing to be there it'll be there with you in all its qualities of suchness, nakedness, courage, strength. Mm. Something, you know, we infer that. I don't think those trees think that. (laughs) 
they're just doing what they can to survive. But somehow the, the bond between the human and the natural world has that quality to it, it inspires a certain quality. And certainly the Buddha spent all his time, or as much of his time as there was, to be with the natural world. Spent most of his time in forests or in clearings or occasionally stopping off into village halls or uh, I think three months he would spend in, in a monastery where he, so that he could give teachings. Most of the time just off on the road, sleeping under trees, um, living on alms food. And always that way of life encouraged. So he said as long as uh, Sangha honour and respect forest dwellings, it will continue to thrive. As long as it respects and honours and seeks forest dwellings, it will continue to thrive. When it doesn't do that anymore, it will start to ossify. And and that's what happens. <laughs> so, you know, just in looking in the monastic Sangha history, you see that process happening. It gets, first of all, it's kind of wilderness, and then it gets respect and gain and renown, wealth, temples, monasteries, structures, administration, ecclesiastical hierarchy. <laughs> and then it starts to ossify, and then some gets kind of corrupt and political and doing deals and stuff like that and then something breaks away from it and says we're getting out of here we're going back to the trees <laughs> little breakaway movements go off and they start something and two or three generations that starts to do the same thing so it's this continual but it's always a sense that that's always the respected you know oh that's the so there's always a sense in which the sangha has renewed itself from the forest monastic sangha and the rest of it's considered, well, you know, a necessary thing to just to organise as you get lots of people. But it always seems to topple over in that organisation. Become too, too rooted in the social world. And the proper place is to be right on the edge of the forest, just coming into the village and then town and you know, right on the edge of that, that margin. Available but not embedded in society. Providing that kind of reference point. Not that you don't care, but just you hold something precious in in that mustn't be sacrificed. The natural, the vulnerable, the uncertain with what that can bring up in people. Certainly physically can bring up great resilience, ability to be with discomfort, hunger, disease, and loneliness, and fear. This is the law. It's a law of nature. So when you have time, just, just you know, being out there, try to just really open yourself to it. Walk out and slow down your pace so you're not in a going somewhere rush. You just walk and then recognize you know, you're walking like a like a city dweller, you know, like someone who's going somewhere, just, you know, cut that, drift for a little while, find a more natural pace, and then see things and pause and open to them, meet them, greet them. It could be a tree, it could be the rain, it could be the side of a river, it could be the something brushing your cheeks, cold, just wherever it is, just open and, and greet it. It's, a, it's like a little meditation exercise of being with, meeting nature. And we learn to have that 
meeting quality which is always uncertain you don't quite know what it is what it would do but you just find your ground find your ability to greet trust that that's what what can be done in nature so you you know I remember I was on Tudong one year in Thailand with a, another monk and uh, there were tigers, we were in a national park and there were tigers and I had my own tiger experience but which was yeah, another story <laughs> but his was walking he was, didn't have his top robe on he was just walking with an under robes top robe over a bag or something just walking you know, walking along, and, so, and walking, and he looks around, and he's deer. Looks all these deer, or ants, deer, yeah, they were deer. Yeah. Oh, kind of moving that way, and they're, they're all pricking their ears and moving that way. It's interesting, right? Tiger. <laughs> That's why they're all moving that way, there's a tiger, you know, like about, I don't know, 15 feet away. Tiger's watching the deer. Tiger looks around, watches him. Stop. And he said this kind of thing. Okay. So he, he sort of stepped back, and then he got his robe on, put his robe on properly. Okay, just walk forward, meet the tiger. You know, he would go out, go out properly, so just slowly <laughs> step back. <laughs> yeah, okay, just take it slowly, just gently walk forward, meet the tiger. Tiger looks in. Gets off. <laughs> and this is, uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, if you really know what you're doing. <laughs> But, you know, if you look at that, you interpret that, looking at your own tigers <laughs> inside, you know, places where you get rattled or startled, and what does that gesture mean? You kind of go back to your basic kind of presence, fully here, and gently move forward, greeting. This is the, the law of the... Um, of the noble ones. It's not rushing forward to fix it, change it, scare it, get, you know, prove something, but just gently, okay, move forward into that. Holding presence, holding your presence. Recognize you turn around and run, that tiger's going to come running after you. So, and, you know, when we look at that internally, that's, sometimes that's what we do. We kind of meet our stuff and then scatter. Yeah. And just pause. Find the ground. Touch your presence, awareness. Take your time. Gently move forward. So often, you know, practice and process, you know, we come into these very um, compacted or reflexes that, that run, that rush through us, and we find ourselves driven into these compulsive reactive places where we're just rattling around in these old habits and uh, trying to get out of it, you know. And then that simple metaphor I mean, is incredible loss of personal face in that. That's good. Pause, stop, you know, return to ground. 
move forward gently. This is uh, sati, you know, there's the, the uh, proposing, heedfulness, viveka, opening, and then mindfulness framing up. Okay, this is this. We don't know it, but we know how to hold the frame of presence, hold, hold the quality of awareness, and just move forward with that. Sometimes things are not so simple, of course. They don't necessarily immediately reveal themselves. They're hugely layered or buried under layers of of stories, narratives, uh, I was, I wasn't, I should have been, I wish I, she hadn't, and they did this and this and so forth. Uh, layers and layers, so we don't necessarily really know. We can't necessarily meet the nerve because it's compacted under quite reasonable statistics and true enough, in their own way, true enough facts. This is what perception does. Mm. Perception, attention, perception, you know, we perceive, that is, in our, and we retain cognitive um, and emotive data. data. So at any given moment we can walk in and then suddenly the, our world appears. And it's, where is it? Well, it's perceptual. Titter is only affected by perceptions. And though those perceptions may seem to be what? Just a perception? Well, yeah. But that's exactly what moves the heart. Nothing else. So on paper it sounds easy enough until it, you feel your heart is jumped and moved by it perception, perceptions, and what they carry. Mm. You know, sign of overwhelm is uh, that particular perception. Being overwhelmed can't manage, just can't manage. And what that does, the reflexes and the triggers that happen when we go into overwhelm, can't manage, can't do this, can't bear this. Yeah. And the perceptions, we, the, the, the triggers that happen when we get to, you know, I've got to, I'm locked in, I've got to do this, I've got to, I've got, you know, there's no choice, perceptions that happen there, the pressure, loss of space. Mm. And these movements, you know, can't get away. The vibhavatana, the thirst, the craving to get away from this uncomfortable place, to form somewhere outside this place, if I could form myself as a cheerful, confident, relaxed, happy-go-lucky, wise, so forth, compassionate human being. <laughs> so we look in our ideas box, all the theories about what we should do in order to be one, and we, we've missed the place where it could grow. We have a kind of an image, we don't actually have really touched nature yet. We've gone into the human theologies of it. And yeah, you know, people can get quite quick at doing that. But it isn't really the real thing grows. The natural thing grows in the world of nature, which is raw, uncertain. It can only be met by opening to it, bowing to it. So, you know, the vibhava, get me out of this, I want to be separate from this. I want to be, want to be you know, bhavatana, the thirst to find a form, even within this, that will protect me from it. I can have my shields up, you know. Uh, doesn't matter to me, this is this, so what? You know, here I am nice and solid within that. I've got my answers, my strategies, my, you know, yeah, you're right, nice and solid. There are always these tanhas which throw throw into the personal form. It's an immediate reflex to throw, get thrown into the personal form to become someone who's, you know, able to manage and get through or to be, be 
be someone who's not touched by this, pulling away from it. And by and large, human processes tend to be operate in that way. And upon that basis, we get the the uh, you know what we see being act, acted out, the kind of um, not wishing to meet uh, the systems that say, "I'm sorry, there's nobody here today. We're not available. You haven't filled in the form." You know, you know, you're sick. It doesn't matter because you haven't got your credit card with you. <laughs> That's the law. You know, I don't want to touch the human predicament. I've got my systems. I'm out of here. Yeah. Or the, you know, I don't want to be with the people who don't like, or the people who don't like, or we feel are other, lowly, stupid. Mm-hmm. So we maintain a defence against that. So these are the things that human beings act upon and then erect various systems and structures to justify and process that. How to not be with that which we can't manage or order, control. So going back to nature, real nature, so let's, you know, put that, put all that down. A chance to put that, to put that down. And say so many, many of these processes are kind of buried under our domestic lives, and ordinary lives. Mm-hmm. And you want to watch out for where the pressure or the twitchy pieces occur because there's generally something under there mm-hmm. where you want to dismiss or f- shrug something off or, oh, well, it's just her, it doesn't really matter, or everybody's like that. You know, those kind of shrug-off remarks that we find ourselves thinking or making. Well, well, <laughs> you know, the, the, that twitch. Yeah. So anything that, you know, when you get these volitional twitches, you realize, well, there's something under there, there's something there, so what's here? Yeah. And, uh, you know, practicing, if people say, well, how do you practice in your, in your daily life? Well, this is your, it's all your daily life, really. <laughs> but a lot of it is uh, on retreats, it becomes more apparent and revealed, and certainly the issues of, most people's daily lives, including mine, is that these underlying qualities as an utsaya, latent tendencies, are not revealed. They're generally, you know, we're, we're living in a social domain. And it's managed, polite, comfortable, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And so these, these qualities are not necessarily, the tendencies are not revealed. And you want to actually stop and pause around those places where you build a, a wall or you get in your box or it doesn't really matter or those kind of places you dismiss or shrug or look the other way just to feel touched by it all Because this is where you know we will grow beyond just being a, a reasonable social person <laughs> into something far more uh, luminous, expanded, and free from dukkha, free from it, not avoiding it, free from it. And see what life brings. I was reflecting for some reason. I was just a dear, dear old monk I know, a friend of mine in, who lives in this, in the monastery that I was abbot of. And there's, you know, he is quite when you ever get it out of him because he's very, somebody very reticent about his own personal life. You start to get little snippets of, wow, that was weird, you know. Uh, so, such uh, I think he was born of immigrant parents who didn't. I didn't even spoke much English even. So 
they struggled to get by. I think it was time of war or where things were very difficult. So there really wasn't very much of anything. And he and his, he had some brothers and his sister or so. And they used to give the kids whatever clothes they could find. And sometimes they were women's clothes. But you had to, just any old thing, to just get some wrapping around you. So he was, sometimes he was dressed as a girl, sometimes <laughs> dressed as a the same as his brothers, they never quite knew what was going on on that level. <laughs> they didn't learn to read until he was an adult, you know, so it was a very difficult life in many ways. And, but we only knew him because he used to turn up at the monastery, very strange, very strange person, very strange. Because <laughs> he'd, he'd uh, He'd turn up and he has this kind of mass of hair, bushy beard, massive thick hair, and he had this kind of, he never looked anybody in the eye, always looked down. And he had a cloak. And he'd turn up with his cloak, and he had a staff and a cloak, put his staff down and his cloak. He'd come to the morning sitting, sit there. Okay, who's this guy? I don't know. And he'd sit there and then the old ring and he'd go out and he'd do some work. And he had a little gourd that he uses a treat out of it, it was very big, so he'd only eat food out of this little gourd, you know, hollowed gourd. So he'd eat that, didn't really seem to eat very much at all. And then he'd, he'd stay there for the day, don't say very much, just do, do some work. And then in the evenings, evening pudding, he'd disappear. The next morning, he didn't stay in the morning, he didn't stay in the house. Nobody knew where he went. Where do you go? I don't know. He'd say, where do you go? He says, I go into the suchness of things. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> that was all he'd say. All right. All right. What, what, who are you? What's your name? Oh, I, I, I am generally the one who's here. <laughs> so you think, okay. You could never actually get much of a logical thing out of him. <laughs> so he kept sticking around and staying around, staying around, and nobody ever knew where he lived because he didn't. He didn't stay in the house. He'd always be there at four four thirty in the morning, stay there till nine at night, and then disappear. And uh, only found out he just go and sleep under a hedge somewhere. He had an old tarp, and he'd go outside because he didn't like houses. He'd stay outside and sleep under a tarp somewhere in the woods. And he even found a place he'd burrowed. He'd made a little burrow where he'd crawl into. And uh, so time went by and eventually, you know, after a few years, quite a few years, he decided to, you know, take on Anagarika training. And he, he shaved all his hair off. And he'd shave a bit of it every day. So his hair got short and his beard gradually disappeared from being a full beard down to being a goatee. So there's only two strands left and he snipped and he did the same with his moustache. He gradually turned from a walrus into a Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> and he did his eyebrows, he did one eyebrow, he had one eyebrow and then the other eye. So he just kind of morphed into this. Well, <laughs> so, <laughs> like nature, you know, like the trees losing their leaves. So he really was a, a man of nature. And, uh, but, you know, you think, well, where does this person live, you know? He's not going to be doing a nine to five, is he? So he take, okay. And after about five years, he finally looked up. <laughs> you know, you know, she looked, um, looked up when he was talking. Oh, he's got landing on the planet, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you know. He kind of pieced together little pieces, and he's been um, nursing his wife for seven years, he was dying of cancer. So he was, you know, he never found out until way, way later. That's where he'd, that's where he'd come from before he entered the monastery. She'd been, his wife had been dying of cancer for seven years, so he'd just been nursing her, and maybe that, and various other things. Mm. So just you know. But um, anyway, there are many wonderful stories about this particular monk. 
but the last one one that come to mind this morning I was just recollecting we, because the monastery tends to be very open so you got all kinds of good mostly very good and sincere and occasionally people with severe problems turning up and there's one fellow who used to turn up seemed very in one way very devout but he had a split and when he split into his other personality he became very violent he felt threatened and he felt angry and he kept fighting. He's quite physically quite big, so he started getting really violent and abusive. He'd, he'd detect some sense of threat or not being liked somewhere. And he'd go into this violent stage and he'd get really aggressive and violent. So he had to just back off, you know, okay, what's happening, Dave? Just, okay, you know, and give him space and be with that. And then he got cancer and he was dying of cancer and he lived in a old uh, back of a van over in a forest somewhere and that, that was because nobody would take him in he was just too too turbulent and so he was dying of cancer and uh, he went to his son his son wouldn't take him in he said no he couldn't stand him hated him went to his sister his sister wouldn't take him in she hated him too and his wife was dead so turned up then um, this old monk who used to live above the workshop come in so he was never an official guest but this the monk who lived this old monk who lived above the workshop would uh, come in he rant this old this guy would rant and the old monk would listen to him and just keep doing his work oh yeah doing his work oh yeah and just be there and then uh dragged a bench in from outside, put it down in front of the fire. You can lie down here. And got a blanket, you can take a rest here. Just just taking it like that, you know. Um, and he was the only person who would take him in. Man of nature doesn't reject anything. So this went on for sev- several weeks, months in fact, until the person eventually, you know, uh, I think the monastery finally managed to get some resources to get him into a hospice where he could die, noble hospice, to finish his life. It was such a nice uh, I- example of someone who had no line, no strategy, no training, no counselling care, no no nothing, just just uh, sheer acceptance and patience and willingness to be with that which is violent, unsteady, unpredictable, and just hold the space, you know. Uh, so I found that just such a you know enormous example. And you look around for things like that, where quite quite reasonably you could have said, look you haven't filled in the form, you're not a guest, you don't follow the training rules, you're difficult and offensive, there's no room for you here. <laughs> That's the rules. <laughs> and everybody knew it was going on, but they're just, okay, this is this old monk, he's got his own thing, that's fair enough, let him do it the way he does it. So, you know, someone who steps outside the, the systems and customs, but, but with that quality offering his own presence. And this in a way is what we all do. It's not that we don't train in and develop the understandings and the processes and the systems and the techniques, those are essential. But remember, these are not here for trophies. They're not here, you don't meditate so you can become the eternal meditator. <laughs> you know, you, you don't do these things so that you'll become the perfect meditator, whatever that is. You know, it's not a it's not a an award system. We're not. You know, you do these things in order to to understand the four noble truths, to touch the four noble truths, to have the capacity to meet dukkha. And dukkha is not a theory, and it's not comfortable, and it uh, definitely throws you back beyond your personal resources into 
these transpersonal qualities which start to arise in that field of jitta. And these are expressed in many ways. We could talk metta, karuna, um, virya, energy, and so forth. But also recognizing these, what are called the bojanga, the enlightenment faculty, the ability to sustain a frame of reference. This is this, this is this, this is not other than this. This is the jitta affected by fear. This is the jitta affected by lust. This is the jitta affected by rage. This is the contracted jitta. This is the uncontracted jitta. This is the jitta affected by warmth, friendliness, kindness. You know, just this is how it is, framing up. And one knows it as it is. And mindfulness. <laughs> What's the technique for that? <laughs> Meet what arises. There's nothing going wrong. Everything is normal. Dhamma uh, Vijaya, inquire, like, how is this? How am I with this? What's its nature? Is it really a person? Is it really me? That constant courage to inquire. Not, why am I like this? Or how can I get change into something else? But, where is this? How is this? Is it in my throat? Is it in my heart? What's its energy? Is it rushing, panging, flaring, sinking, whirling? Inquiry in that level. And arising, welling up, welling up, rushing up. Moving up, holding. These are things we can kind of learn to do take some doing, but learn to do that. And uh, beautifully then other factors start to rise as a sense of um, actually pity, rapture, or thrilling, a buoyant quality when you find the fit, you actually touch that which needs to be seen or held or be aware of it actually as it is rather than how we think it or label it or you know in its dhamma essence the the rush of passion the retraction of fear the fluster of worry till eventually these words don't mean anything you just tackle the the pressures and the pushing and uh, and the rushing and the sinking and something feels very glad to touch that subtle and with viveka then it gives rise to a strange enough to a kind of an uplift and these these phenomena pass there's gladness pity so then that's what happens you don't do it it happens it happens through handling and allowing processes to arise well up, be known as they are, as dhammas, not as self, and held until they've spoken what they need to say and move through, and then there's a sense of joy. And you think, wow, why am I, why am I happy? Why am I joyful? What's that? And the Buddha said, well, it's like someone who comes out of jail. Oh, it's not what you walked into, it's what you walked out of. <laughs> so normally we kind of think that happiness is something you have to find and have, and, and go somewhere to get. And that's the logic of the world. Logic of Dhamma is that this pity, this kind of happiness arises from leaving or allowing stuff to pass through and recognizing, ah, oh, now it's, that's the end of that one. That moment says someone who is free from debt, out of jail, with a weight off their back. This quality, joy arises, rapture arises. So this one just happens, you don't do it. 
they don't get it, it comes to you with the abating of the flurry and the uncertainties around these hindering qualities. And then one is able to calm, pasadi, and then the mind drops in a way into something. The space that's opened up, it drops into it, and there's warmth, and there's firmness, and it's being received, and firms up. And this is you like a colloquial way of describing Samadhi, the Samadhi of of release. Then you begin to, oh, that was just that. That was just that. Oh, it was just a perception. <laughs> Which you knew. On one level, you, already, you knew it, but you didn't know it. You just knew, you knew that that memory of my da-da-da-da-da, was just a memory, but you didn't really know it. Till it's, oh, it's just that, past. It's now got no more life in it, no more ability to, to push and sting. The origin of suffering, the welling up has been held. The welling up of that process has been carefully held. The passion to be, to get away, to manage, to try to be a solid person, or once you know gets through it or gets away from it, that passion has been stopped with a stopping of craving. Yeah, there's the descent, the ceasing of suffering through the it's called the complete dispassionate, no strings attached. Light <laughs> list of, of 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 words the Buddha used. Uh, mm complete, dispassionate, no strings attached, release. <laughs> yes. You know, nobody got anything, nobody gained, no winners. Just there is it, there is the release. Mm. Uh, it's the ceasing of suffering. And then, ah, that was that, and that was that. Then you begin to understand a path because it's taken you, or it's taken something to the place of release. Ah, then, oh, that means if I hold those references, yeah, then, fourth noble truth. And the references are not that refined, like right intention, right view, uh, and so forth. Right view. And hold it. And try to deepen into that as a, as a gut-level experience. And that takes some, some doing. But many times this is exactly what the struggle or process of meditation is about, where it actually on a, almost a gut level it's sensed as this is something passing through rather than I'm stuck with this. This is conditions and call only. It's not a person. Mm. Now the you know, the, the sankharas or those volitional activities which I've touched into that are triggered by perception, they are described in various ways. The one sense of them is that they're active. They're, they rush, they surge. And the other sense is they form. They're called volitional form formation. So they form, they form residues. And these residues get, get very hard, you know like something that keeps laying down a residue and it builds up into a hardness. Yeah. And so the life, the, the movement seems to have gone out of it. You think, this one isn't, this is not impermanent, this is permanent. This is lasting, this is solid. Mm-hmm. And this impacted sense that we can get contracted, impacted. Sometimes, you know, there's an impacted low of depression of can't, can't make, can't do, never will be, you know. Maybe a lot of the time we don't touch into that, perhaps. Mm. You know, because we generally can do something. Mm. There these, there, but there are residues there of being you know, restricted or can't do, can't go, or abandoned. You know, there's, an, there's an abandoned place, perhaps, for some of us, or many of us, where you just feel very alone. 
in it all. Um, you don't definitely don't want to go there. But life does take you there at times. And mm, it seems very like a cold, grey fog or over the heart. It doesn't seem to be moving at all. And really, you know, my sense of this is just continuing to open to to life and feel feel it as it is, because there is something that runs to that place. There is a line that runs to that place. Most every the, the moments when we feel the sense of failure, the generally that energy runs to that place and lays down another residue. Or the moment we feel there's something wrong with me, that line runs to that place and lays down a residue, familiar sense. Notice that, notice what it, would you, could you name it? Could you color it? Could you, yeah. Or perhaps when you're really sick in the middle of the night, there's nobody around. That, that sense. Now, as a person, I think most of us can cope with that, manage that, and we generally do things to move out of that, out of these places. And we find, switch something on, go somewhere, reach out for something, and we can manage it. We can just kind of, well, oh well, you know, <laughs> life's like that. So certainly, you know, I think when I started this training, then we were always with... Uh, you know, there was a, I was in a little, you know, enclave in a monastery and there we were all taught this vipassana, what they called vipassana. Seemed to be a means of going slowly crazy. (laughs) 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 They they called it a technique. (laughs) Slowly getting more and more emotionally dysfunctional. Just bear noting what was going on and not not allowed to feel anything, <laughs> which you know I already had a problem with that. So and then they built it up. So you know, and then people would come and go, and mostly at that level, you just okay. Oh well, he's off, you know, because you know they'd only been there two weeks and they couldn't stand it, and they went off, you know. And then somebody else came for, and they were there for three weeks, they couldn't stand it, and they left. You know. So you could use this process of, you know. That's that's what happens. Just people are coming and going, and okay, good luck, mate. You know, off you go, <laughs> and so forth. And some of them actually went, you know, really sort of breaking down in tears. And oh, sorry about that, Joe. Well, you know, good luck back in Australia or wherever you're going. Uh, couldn't make it. Couldn't do it. And that was, you know, after a while you get the panging of that. And, you know, made a stone. And then certainly coming to, to to Britain and living in the community was all sort of quite buoyant at first and then naturally people are again are kind of leaving, coming and going. Most people leave. Um, and you think, oh well, great, we used to chop wood together, now he's off. Oh well you know, we used to hang out together, now he's oh well, he's gone. And she was so gentle and nice and now she's gone. Oh well. You, know, you get that kind of donk feeling it doesn't work, does it? <laughs> you know, something like that sits there and nothing you can do is also part of it. Nothing you can do, nothing you can do. Mm, the kind of wall of the person. Mm. And that's, then you can go, oh well, you know, and you can say, well, you know, that's it, his calm didn't have enough barami or his karma ran out or this isn't for everybody. You can justify, get logical about it and get away from the pang of separation. 
and feeling somehow you didn't do enough. But then it gets even more intense when you're supposed to be the teacher or the person who holds. And you know, you, people come in, they're a bit rough and ragged and f- fractured, and you say, okay, spend a year or so just settling, calming, and steadying, encouraging, listening, and two years, okay, getting it together, right, three years, four or five years, okay, he's on his feet now, she's going now, right, six years, seven years, oh, right, it's great to have this person, wow, she's so nice, and I'm off. <laughs> oh. What did I do? What didn't I do? What's wrong? What's wrong with the system? What did I do? Oh well, you know. How many times can you keep shrugging? And then you, you know, before you touch into the something more deep than that. Mm. Decade. Somebody's been there for a decade. Ten years, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years, and then ah, ah, it's great. Oh, she's off. No, surely. Oh, gone. And then you say, oh, next time you're in Nicaragua, look me up. Yeah, sure. (laughs) 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 Oh, well. You know, the pang, and you've got to reckon, when you actually start to to hold people, or hold, and then that's, that's, that's the cost, isn't it? You, you know. What, you know, you just say, well, it's just another statistic. That doesn't seem, you can't train people to statistics. <laughs> you have to enter, touch everyone's stuff in a way. And once you've touched that, then that's it. You're in, like it or not. And then when it leaves, there's the rip. Whatever you can manage it, you know, of course one can manage it. Well but still feel the essential failure, loneliness, separation, and touch that. And I found just, you know, actually trying to hold steady in that. I remember even, you know, we're not, we're not made of stone. I remember there was this uh, senior monk and Lamarawati and, uh, Bhumi Ajahn's made of 20 years through thick and thin, and then he felt he had to leave. And so you, when you leave, you have to go to see the per, your preceptor and then formally take leave. So if I ask permission to leave, and he says, okay, that's what you need to do, you know. And he couldn't, Ajahn's really couldn't do it. He just couldn't, he had to stay in his cootie for at least a day on his own just to be able to bear with this person leaving, who was in way, many ways making the right decision, just that sense of, you know, someone of his, just made his tremendous gravity and experience still, as a human being. And that separation, painful. Can't be any other way, can it? Can't say, oh good, I'm glad you're off. <laughs> You know, so then what are you going to do? Stay separate? Well, it's just another shrug, just another statistic moving through. Here's the rules, here's the procedures, here's the systems. Good luck on your own, mate. No. But as soon as you touch, then, you know, and uh, that's the way it is. But I found being with that and actually holding steady with that touched into this more frozen level of something, you know, that's suppressing, actually suppressing the sadness of life with this blanket of don't feel it, that's the way it is, you can't deal with it, people are like that, nothing's going to stay for you, it's never going to work, nobody's going to be there that kind of philosophical mumbled suppression and then this human quality just sends a charge into that you know, the separation of what came together sends a kind of electric shock into that primary quality and it starts to move shake, 
and you feel shaken. And you think, well, yeah, but of course, people do what they have to do. It's, you know, no, no, that isn't it. That isn't it. It isn't, yes, you know, he did the best he could or she needed to go somewhere else. Yeah, that's true, that isn't it. The it is, you know, the separation and the, uh, that which touched and bonded separated and then there's that and feel it. Be present with that. And it's, you know, it's not comfortable, but then this breaks up the mass of, you know, fundamental heldness where you're holding yourself against life, where you're braving up against it all, where you're making do with it all, where you're coping with it all. It starts to break it up into experiences sometimes of you know, emotional pangs of sadness or difficulty or whatever, then blows through. Mm. And it makes you more, okay, less unwilling, actually more willing to take that on again take on the human contact, more willing to, because the more you take it on, the more it's going to take you through these places till there's nothing left to grieve over. Remember one of the, uh, you know, the stories of the Buddha, when he, Sariputta and Moggallana both died before him, and they were his, his chief disciples, um, people of great prowess and acclaim, and People who could, you know, be, I guess many people thought, well, when the Buddha passes away, these two who are young, younger than him, they will take over. Then we will have this nice, you know, lineage and transmission and things will go on. In fact, they both died before him. Yeah. And uh, the Buddha's, there's a saying when the Buddha says, I look around in the Sangha and it's like there were two mighty trees there, two wonderful mighty trees that are now gone. This Sangha looks empty to me now. Wow. And he says, it is truly marvelous, it is truly miraculous that the Tathagata does not, is able to, is not shaken by it. And when he's talking about the Tathagata, he's not talking about me as a person, he's talking about some fundamental ground quality that can bear that, you know. And you, you look at it again, you think, okay, well, empty phenomena rolling. I don't think that's what he thought, empty phenomena rolling. <laughs> I think he felt, these are my two close, strong, loyal, supportive Dharma supports, colleagues, friends, you know, people who rejoice to their sight and now they're, they're gone. And there's something like a, a tremble there when you, when you read it, you look into it. And then he even says, wow, it's amazing, it's marvellous that even with this, there's that ground, the targeta, the truth, the ground of suchness, which opens to that. Mm. You know, in a way, you know, our life, our practice is life, is daily life, is the death of the mother, you know, is the separation, is the mm, whatever throws us out, or we fear will throw us out. Mm. It is that. You know. <coughs> These systems and processes are there not so that we just get good at doing systems and processes. There are systems and processes there to, and to try to encourage us to generate pathways whereby the push and the pressure and the weight and the frustrations of life can blow through and cease, pass. And in that we touch the ground. As I said, you know, touches the deathless. It doesn't grab hold of the deathless. 
you know, it's a light touch. It's not a ferocious grasp of holding on for security. It's the light touch. Ah, through this touch, you know. This is the, definitely the way that, in my experience, such as it is, that's the way it goes in its own time and probably for, takes a while and you notice the sort of places what I call the saboteur who locks the door yeah. on, that, on that process and the saboteur, the prisoner who locks the door says you can't do and makes that a finality you'll never change this is the way you always were. The world's like this. People are like that. Put up with it. Let's face it, let's be honest. The world's a mess, nothing you can do about it. People are brutish and this, that and the other. Let's face it, you are addicted, craving, feeble, pathetic. Let's face it, that's as far as it goes. <laughs> the saboteur locks the door of the box. So you come up against that, you hit it, you go back, you know, well, you know, and you go that. And any, any place, you know, you can just poke a finger. You can't get everything through the door, just even poke a finger through the wall of the box. Yeah. Well, you don't have to have all the answers to everything in the world, everything in your life, because that's what perception does. When you get to the place of can't do, that signal triggers and in rush the whole perceptual realm of what you didn't do, can't do. You, you perceive the entire dimension of stuckness. It becomes a universe of stuckness, of stuck places, of fixed people, of fixed opinions, of this, that and the other. And that proves it. <laughs> because I always, and that didn't work, and that didn't work, and that failed, and that went haywire, and I'm always this, you know. And there it is proved. Lock, padlock, throw away the key, you know. And how many times do we do that? Give up on ourselves. See? And is it possible to say, well, I don't know. I don't know. But I can stand in the presence of a tree, open to that. But what's that doing about the state of the world after all? And what are you doing about your domestic life? What's that doing about your job issues? What's that doing about your habits, your addictions? Your pain? Nothing, you're not doing anything standing in front of a tree. Yes, <laughs> 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 <There> you are. <laughs> you're learning to come out of the perceptual prison and open. And just notice you, you can do that. Of course, nothing's changed on, the, on one way. But a different signal has occurred. Different signal of the raw, the open, the way it is, exactly as it is. That signal, when the chitter picks up that signal, it shakes off. It's out of that prison of no go, fear, trapped, grief, depression. For that moment, nature offers that possible to signal something other than what our human contrivances do to us. Yeah. And then that signal ripples through the jitta. Take it in. Suddenly, uh-huh. And if you stay with that, this is the interesting process, you begin to see possibly there's one little possible change you could make. I could go here, I could meet so-and-so, I could stop doing that, I could pause for a moment, for 10 seconds, for a minute. That change, you do that, another field of possibilities opens up. Uh-huh, I could do this, I could meet him, I could do this, do that, another field of possibilities opens up. That's the way it goes, in terms of your integrated personal life. But the important thing, you know, the key point to recognize in your meditation practice, what you call your Dhamma practice anyway, is, you know, coming to those places where you get to the edge of your box. And I'm, I think we've talked, I've, we've all 
heard this, I've talked about this, go to the place where you get to the edge of your box, pause, somewhere in your toes, in the sole of your foot, <laughs> in the back of your mind, in a memory in your heart, somewhere there's a place where it opens. In an out-breath, in, a men- in an emotional gesture, in a recollection of someone else, there's a place where that frozen opens. In the beauty of the aggregates is that perception rules the mind. Perception. You touch into the perception of the something beautiful, even in this confusion. Just touch it and signal it. Stay in it. Signal it. That signal runs through the body-mind. Something shifts. Mm. There, that's, that's what we're getting keen about. That shifting. And new, po- new potentials arise. And gradually these potentials begin to form the integral, the person of truth. Mm. Anyone?